Salabona, and thanks for listening. Welcome to the Wines of South Africa podcast. I'm U.S. Marketing Manager Jim Clark. In each episode, we explore some aspect of South African wine. We talk with winemakers, winery owners, and other members of South Africa's vibrant wine industry, and we also give a sommelier a chance to share their impressions of the wines. In this episode, we're going to look at the South African wine industry's efforts to create a sustainable future for the Western Cape, protect the environment, and conserve the beautiful Cape Floral Kingdom. This is the smallest floral kingdom in the world in terms of square miles, but the largest in terms of plant species, and 70% of those almost 10,000 species found there occur nowhere else in the world. The industry has 92,000 hectares of vineyards, but has actually put 140,000 hectares of land into permanent conservation to protect these plants and the many birds and animals that live among them. In 1998, the South African wine industry introduced the Integrated Production of Wine System, a sustainability program that now certifies more than 95% of the industry, including growers, sellers, and vineyards. Beyond that, there are also producers who have gone into organic or biodynamic farming, invested in solar power, or found other innovative ways to allow the natural world around their vineyards to thrive. We're going to talk to a few leaders in this area. To allow more time for a deep dive into conservation efforts, we'll also be skipping our sommelier interview today. I'm Johan Reinecke. I'm the owner of Reinecke Wines. It's a biodynamic wine farm, certified biodynamic organic. We've been farmed in this way for the last, sure, 21 years already. Our farm is located in the Polkadra Hills, just outside Stellenbosch. They're definitely two starting points that really played a central role in how I approach farming. I think, in fairness, America plays a big role because I fell in love with a girl. Today, she's my wife, Mila. And she traveled in the States and she got a, a job as an au pair in Pasadena. And I basically followed her. And we spent a year living in the States, working around. And then when I came back, I had to resume my studies. But my parents thought that if I was old enough to go abroad for a year, I was old enough to look after myself. And I was desperately looking for a job. And I was actually on a, a waiting list for a local restaurant. I was waiting to get employed. And then I got offered a job, just a temporary casual job to work in the vineyards on one of our neighboring farms. So I started doing that. I really loved it. I loved the outdoorsiness of it. It felt like real work, physical work. I was young and fit and strong and I just loved it. I completely fell in love with pruning the vines and harvesting them and working in the fields. And at the same time, as a worker, there were certain things that we had to do that didn't sit well with me. And one of them was the handling and use of potentially hazardous chemicals. So I was given herbicides and pesticides and fungicides to spray. And despite taking the necessary measures that one must take when you handle these chemicals, I couldn't help a feeling of resentment creeping in whenever I have to work with them. You pick up a can and it's got a skull and crossbones on it and it tells you it can cause cancer and do a host of terrible things. So that didn't sit well with me and increasingly so over time, I wanted to actually stop doing that. At the same time, I was 
resuming my studies. And at the time I was doing a master's degree in philosophy. I was writing a thesis and I was looking at the relationship between environment and development. We get ahead as a species, but also how that impacts on the planet on which we live. And that the world is constantly changing and evolving. And therefore, we must update our understanding of things as well. So I think with knowledge comes obligation. And over time, I came to realize that we were what they referred to as the Anthropocene age. We were firmly embedded in this. And what this means is that through all our technology and all our progress and all the amazing breakthroughs that we made, we've got ourselves into a point where our own development has the potential to undermine our existence. We've become so clever and so powerful and so strong that we can actually end our existence on this planet if we continue unabated. From a personal experience as a farm laborer, I didn't enjoy working with hazardous chemicals anymore. And the books that I read in the evening about our relationship with the planet, uh, nature becoming more and more vulnerable, humans becoming more and more dominant, I think both of those just prompted me to look at farming in a different way. At the time, I wasn't aware of organics. I wasn't aware of biodynamics. I just wanted to farm in a sustainable way. And it just so happened that in my search for knowledge on how to do this, I came across organic and biodynamic farmers and they then shared their methodology with me. And this was then the methodology which we employed and which we still employ today to try and achieve those objectives. One of the things that I realized off the bat was that being an organic farmer or a biodynamic farmer involved a lot more than just the absence of herbicides, pesticides, and fungicides. Because initially, that's all I did. I just stopped spraying and I stopped using the chemicals. And things went pear-shaped very quickly. I think within six months, I had weeds and pests and plague and disease in my vineyards. It was so embarrassing. So it was definitely a rocky start. It wasn't an easy journey. And I also then understood that nobody actually likes using herbicides and pesticides and fungicides. People don't use them because they like to use them. People use them because they have to use them. Um, we are not hunter-gatherers anymore. We farmers. If you're going to plant a lot of stuff together, you're bound to be presented with a whole host of problems. So what I understand now is that Although there's a necessity for the herbicides and pesticides and fungicides, there are also other softer technologies available to achieve the same objectives. So instead of using a herbicide, for example, one can use companion planting strategies. Or instead of using a pesticide, one can do a form of biological control. And same for fungicides. It was almost a re-education that needed to take place. And I learned there was a big difference between being organic by neglect and being so by design. I realized that just stop using the chemicals, my farm would just revert to wilderness. 
and if I was going to remove the conventional system of agriculture, I had to have a very clear alternative model in place to fulfill those functions. And uh, it was a very interesting journey because I think that philosophy of control that you have in a conventional vineyard, what you try and do is to remove all your problems and to create a space that you completely dominate and control. So you use herbicides and pesticides and fungicides to get rid of everything other than the vines that grow there. And then you manipulate with water and fertilizer to get the results that you want to achieve. So in my mind, I think I understood that I reached a point where it didn't make sense to fight nature anymore. It was a battle I was bound to lose. I could play for time, but sooner or later, I would run out of options. And I was also amazed by how well nature worked. And not necessarily on my farm, but if I went for a walk in wilderness, I saw an incredible system, very complex, very diverse, incredible beauty. It just blew me away. I'm not a religious person, but if there is such a thing as a miracle, that's what came to mind. And I was so taken by it. And then I, I just couldn't understand why we had to use all this aggression in agriculture if nature seemed to to work so well. So I then understood that instead of fighting plants with chemicals, I could rather work with nature and establish nice plants to outgrow the ones I didn't like. Instead of using poison to kill snails and that same poison would kill wild birds and your dog and whatever else ate them, I could go and buy a truckload full of ducks and those ducks would by nature walk around and eat as many snails as they could. They would do so on Saturday, Sunday, Christmas, New Year, all day, every day. And at the same time, they would leave a fair amount of nitrogen behind through their fertilizer or their manure. And then I just started to rethink about it. I looked at certain pests that we got in the vineyard. And I started to understand that they were there because we destroyed their homes. They lived on a host of herbs and plants that grew in the vine rows. And when I, I removed these with my herbicides, I destroyed the homes of a gazillion insects that then climbed into my vineyards. So instead of using more chemicals to combat them there, I could allow certain herbs like dandelion, for example, to grow. And then these insects would move out of the vines back into the soil again. So it became a lot easier because I wasn't fighting nature anymore. I was trying to understand it and use it as an ally to create a bit of stability through diversity, to outgrow harmful plants with beneficial ones. Good afternoon. My name is Franz Smith. I'm the cellar master of Spear. Spear is situated in Stellenbosch. It's dated back to 1692. I had a privilege to be part of it for the last 26 years. So I started my career as a winemaker there and I'm still here. So I guess I like it right from the beginning. In those days, we were talking a triple bottom line concept. People must be well looked after. The environment must be looked after and the business will follow. This was the buzzword and not really sustainability as such, but it's the same concept. 
So very early in my career, the family that owns Spear and the philosophy and the DNA of the people that work at Spear was better in with the concept of we really need to look after the land. The earth is only so big and we have to preserve it. The population is growing and we need to make sure that the land are in a better state than what we started off with it. But in the same time, we also started looking at the areas where we do agricultural activities. How can we look at the soil and improve the conditions and the quality of the soil? And we had a very simple thinking about it. If we can increase the organic matter in the soil over time, by doing that, we improve the quality of the soil. We improve the water holding capacity. We increase the availability of elements in the soil. So... We started off with an organic process, converting all the vines to organic. Stop spraying weed killers, and that is maybe 15 years ago already. We started working with cattle, high-density grazing with cattle. So we measured the carbon content of the soil back then, and measuring it every two years. And then with high-density grazing, the manure of the cattle is a natural fertilizer of the soil. So we're rotating high-volume animals on a small space, but very often, so once a day or once every second day. And we've been doing it for years. And then over time, you can see how the quality of the soil has increased, how the holding capacity of water, how the amount of grass has increased. And it's a very simple method that we can use. So that's a process that's ongoing. We also produce high volumes of compost, which we produce from the grape skins and all the aliens and all the garden cuttings from the estate. And we work that back into the vineyards and onto the land and into the garden. But the product that came out of it is organic grapes. And we're in our fifth vintage now with organic range. And it starts picking up really nicely. We have another property in Pal, which are also organic since 2017-18, another 100 hectares. Our whole philosophy is if you can't be organic, be as green as possible in a sustainable way. So it doesn't mean we are organic in all our production and all our supplies, but we are using sprays that has the lowest impact on the environment. In many cases, a lot of our suppliers and our producers are also not using weed killers anymore. So we're taking the people on the same journey in a way, but we have to make sure that they also financial sustainable. So that's the other part of it. In time, I think we will increase our focus on organic production into the world, not because we think it's fancy or anything, but I do think people are more and more, it's important for them what they consuming in form of food or wine, what is in the product. So I think transparency of a product is really important. So we are continuing on this journey with our organic production. Sustainability means a lot more than organic practices and what happens in the vineyards. There are lots of other ways a vineyard and winemaking operation can affect the environment, for good and bad. Power use is one example. On the electricity front, on the energy side, we had our challenges in South Africa. We still have our challenges with power supply. We consider ourselves almost a first world country in Africa, but there's not almost a week gone by where we don't have power issues. So, so the national grid is very vulnerable. So every single winery that I know of and bigger wineries have invested millions in generators. You can imagine during harvest, if the power goes off, you have a power cut and the fermentation start running away. It's, it's a nightmare. So all of us invested heavily in generators just for the, the time when there's no power. We also are busy looking in the renewable 
energy. I think we're somewhere between 12 and 15% self-sufficient with, with electricity. We, we definitely are investigating to increase it quite dramatically, especially for the winery. We have plenty of sunlight in South Africa. Solar is a really good option. And the national grid is increasing by 15% a year, the cost. So in five, six years time, you will be able to regain your capital that you invested in, in things like this. We're here in South Africa. The sun is plentiful and solar is definitely something that we've played around with. So we have got a small solar installation on one of our farms. My name is Simon Back. I'm the fourth generation involved with the Baxberg wine business. We're based out near the Simonsburg side of the Paul Mountain. We've been in the business since 1916. So a long history. My father and I run the business and yeah, excited about the future. One of the challenges with solar is that you need electricity at all times of the day and storing electricity is quite expensive. Uh, And interestingly, actually just this week, we started looking at some technology whereby you actually use the solar to create an ice bank. And from the ice bank, you've got this source of ice for cooling essentially 24 hours a day. So the other thing with solar is that sometimes you've got excess energy and you've got nowhere to go with that. So it really answers the question of how do you store either excess electricity or store electricity for different times of the day. So for cooling, we're very excited to play with that. And one of the things that we're going to do in the future is build a smaller cellar just down the road from Baxburg. And we're looking at a whole bunch of things in terms of sustainability from the building itself to the cooling to how we operate And my dad, who's really been the champion of some of the sustainability work, has determined that this is going to be an ultra green operation. So we're excited to explore exactly what that means and really put the backspot footprint or blueprint to work there. And cooling is definitely going to be one of the things we're going to focus on. Energy is a big topic in South Africa, and we have a national utility provider in the form of ESCOM and On the one hand, they're unfortunately not the most reliable. And on the other hand, the cost of electricity has been going up dramatically the last few years in South Africa. So we are all the time looking at other opportunities for alternative energy and specifically alternative electricity. So some of the things that we've experimented with, with some success, some failure as well, is we've got a biomass boiler, which basically uses waste wood chips and and basically you produce essentially hot water from the waste wood chips. And with that hot water, you can use what's called a heat exchange chiller. So basically use the energy in the hot water to actually create cold water. And we use that in terms of controlling fermentation and cold water, which you always need in a cellar. The other thing which we've experimented with is using prickly pears as a source of feedstock and biomass for a gasifier to actually drive a generator and create electricity like that. I would say we're still very much in the early stages of that project, but the vision long-term is for us, wherever we are, to be completely self-sufficient from an energy standpoint. In 2006, we became the first carbon-neutral winery in South Africa and at the time, third in the world. Conservation and sustainability really started becoming a priority for us in the kind of mid-2000s. The topic of climate change was becoming ever more present. I think the likes of Scandinavia was ahead of the curve way before that, but the topic started hotting up, if you will, here in South Africa, early 2000s. You saw 
the release of Al Gore's movie. And as a kind of family and a business, we felt that we had enjoyed the fruits of the land for many generations, but had not always taken account of our impact. And it was really in the mid-2000s where we started saying, hang on a moment, maybe there's a way of doing things differently and operating with a way that took the environment into account. The way we got started was really doing quite a lot of research. We looked at what other farming techniques were being done around the world, whether it was organic or biodynamic. And we started thinking how we wanted to tackle the problem of sustainability. And what resonated with us was looking at the world through the lens of carbon emissions, because we wanted to examine all aspects of the business. So when you take carbon emissions into account, that can include anything from your packaging to my trips to visit clients in the US, to where the wine was going, to the winery operation itself. So it didn't just take into consideration, say, the farming or the winery element. It really is a way of looking at the total picture. And that's what resonated with us. And what we started doing was really measuring everything. You can't really make changes or anything like that if you don't know where you're starting. So we tried to essentially develop a baseline around our activities. And the kind of two main things that we focused on was really energy in the form of fuel usage and electricity usage. And those are the kind of two big sort of baddies in, in terms of our emissions. And, and that's where we started to attack and try to reduce on an annual basis. Conservation has also been a big part of the work that we've done, whether it's setting aside land for the preservation of fainbos, to planting woodlots, to planting trees to offset our carbon emissions in Klapnitz, uh, the small town close by. That's been a, an important part of our work, and I continue to see that will, will play a big role in what we do in the future. For Reinecke, the change in approach in the vineyards also needed to be reflected in the cellar in ways that had an impact on the style of wine as well. When I started farming organically and biodynamically, a lot changed in the vineyard, in my mind, and also in the cellar. So previously, there was a lot of control in the wine cellar. There was this idea of first clean everything with sulfur, then inoculate with specific yeasts, manipulate temperature, lots of pump overs, punch downs, very hands-on winemaking. And as things started to change in the vineyard, it also started changing in the cellar. First, my mindset. I understood that people added yeast for a reason, just like they might have used, I don't know, herbicides or pesticides or fungicides for a reason. But it didn't mean that was the only solution. And a classic example was Sauvignon Blanc. I wanted to do wild yeast ferments. And people said to us, but listen, the wild yeasts are not as vigorous and as strong as the commercial yeast that you buy. Your nitrogen levels, your yan levels are probably not high enough. You'll have to feed with a bit of additional feed. And then also when you put the Sauvignon Blanc in a stainless steel tank and you make it really cold, you turn the temperature down and you add a bit of dry ice or carbon dioxide, you create a very reductive environment. And as this yeast converts the, the alcohol into sugar, it might end up struggling too much and you might get lagging ferments and off flavors of odors. And then I thought I could do what everyone else does, but I could also change the game a bit like I did in the vineyards and perhaps go for a different style of Sauvignon Blanc. 
So what we did was we opted for the wild yeast ferment option, but to give it a bit of a better chance, I let the juice ferment in concrete eggs, one or two, but predominantly in wooden barriques and in fugres. And what it did is in that small vessel, the fermentation temperature didn't get quite as out of hand to the same degree or increase as much as they did in the stainless steel tanks. So it wasn't necessary for me to artificially manipulate the the fermentation temperature. The the combination of the, the oak barrel, the smaller volume of wine, and the less aggressive nature of the wild yeast gave me fermentation curves which were completely acceptable. And I also found that the fact that the environment wasn't so reductive, the barrels could breathe a bit, and the fact that the juice wasn't so cold also allowed the wild yeast to do the job without dragging its feet and having all the negatives that one would associate with lagging ferments. This did, however, it changed the wine style significantly. So I think if you look at a typical Sauvignon Blanc from South Africa, you associate it with New World Sauvignon Blanc, very aromatic, a lot of green notes, quite high acidity, it jumps out the glass. It's quite easy to recognize. And I lost a lot of that. If you have a look at the, the nose of our sovies today, you're going to find floral notes and a bit of lime and maybe even a bit of quince and a whole host of different profiles that I hadn't experienced before, untypical ones, but not as dominant or as obvious as the nose of the way the Sauvignon Blanc used to be when I made it in a conventional way. And on the palate, things also changed. I think the fact that it fermented in that oak barrel and it it had a bit of access to oxygen just changed the palate a lot. It went from a very reductive, sort of sharp, high acidic style of Sauvignon Blanc to a much more gentle one, more mouthfeel, much more length on the palate, lingering aftertaste. I almost want to say the wine changed into more of a gastronomical kind of wine. So it had more weight to it. It wasn't as one-dimensional. It really could be paired with food and all kinds of things better. So it was definitely different, but it wasn't necessarily worse. And in fact, that point of difference probably gave us a bit of a, a gap in the market. Because in a sea of Sauvignon Blancs that tasted very similar, here was one that was definitely unique. If you've followed South African wine for a few years, you know that the Western Cape suffered a serious drought from 2015 to 2018 or so. While that has passed, water demands play a big part in building a sustainable future for the wine industry going forward. I think water and access to water is going to be one of the Cape's biggest challenges in the next 25 years. It's only a handful of years ago that we experienced one of our worst droughts here in the Cape for decades. And what you saw was how fragile the water is really here in the Cape. So what we've tried to do at Baxburg is manage water very carefully. And that goes from using sophisticated drip irrigation on the one hand to also using winery wastewater and trying to recycle that in some instances or use the winery wastewater to for instance, irrigate woodlot, which then is again a source of biomass that you can use, whether it's in a burning process or or something similar. I think 
water and how wineries use water is critical? So I think if you look bigger than just beer, if you look at the Western Cape, we have lots of mountains around us and lots of dams. But if you see the population increase in the last 10 years, people want to move to Cape Town, to the Western Cape. It's enormous pressure on natural resources, water, electricity, road. And I foresee that this pressure is going to continue. Water sustainability for the agriculture sector, where we are playing, is of the utmost importance. In 30 years, maybe we will not be able to receive water from the big reservoirs, the big dams in the catchment area. We don't know, but what we do know is that we need to optimize every drop that we have, and that is our game plan. We can definitely see the dry periods are more regular, dry spells. And in 2014, we had, in my career, the wettest vintage, and then 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, we had the drought. We had, on average, 50% of water. And what it forced us to do is to really look at water resources, make sure we optimize every drop of water. But 12 years ago, we set as a business and we built a recycle plant on the farm where we recycle all the wastewater from the hotel, from the restaurants, from the winery. So we recycle every single drop of wastewater into a state where it's better than environmental levels, minimum levels to put it back into the river. But we don't put it back. We store it in a big dam and we reuse it for irrigation purposes. We even reuse some of it into our hotel. So when you walk around uh, rooms and in the bathrooms, you will see this, this toilet is flush with recycled water. So we try to close the loop and to see how much we can reuse. If you look at a normal vineyard, it's probably between one and a half and two and a half thousand cubic meters of water per hectare per year. Irrigation. On Spear, we run between 400 and 600 in comparison. The yields, when we started off with this program, has dropped dramatically. But ever since then, the yields have stabilized. And so with less of water, we're getting quite sustainable yields. And that has to do with the quality of the soil that has improved. So the higher the carbon matter in the soil, the higher the water retention potential. The more you put organic matter in the soil, the efficiency of the soil is so much better. All the things are there, but it's sometimes not available for the plant. But if you have to work it back, a bottle of wine, uh, how much water, if you're in an irrigated area, it's, it's probably uh, in the hundreds of liter use to make one liter of wine in general. So it's a high number. But if you compare it to, for instance, apples or citrus, we use a fraction of the water to produce wine compared to what to produce a kilo of, of apricots or or lemons. And then I think the biggest difference that we made in the last uh, six or seven years is by educating staff to use water sustainable or as little as possible. And today we measure water for every guest. We measure water for every liter of wine we produce. And when we started off, uh, with this measurement, we will probably be three and a half, four liters of water for one liter of wine. Today, we 1.2, 1.3 liters of water for one liter of wine. So we've come a long way in improving our efficiencies. And it's really, uh, it's to do with people. Of course, systems as well, when we rebuild the winery or increase the winery, we looked at systems where we can save more water and that type of thing. But really, it's people that have done the big difference. We are fortunate in the Western Cape that we probably have the most diverse and intense natural vegetation that you can find in the world. But over the years and with many settlers that came in and hundreds of years ago, many 
alien plants come into the Western Cape. And normally the aliens are quite aggressive growers and they suppress the natural vegetation. And the biggest thing that they do is use huge amounts of water. And you can see when in the mountains where they have removed vegetation, all of a sudden your natural springs start running again. It boils back to water retention. And then the natural vegetation are also smaller. Sometimes these aliens are big trees and big bushes. So we really want to bring it back to its natural state. It's a no-brainer to make sure that our land is in a state in uh, the same state that before uh, before aliens were there. So we have to do this work. And areas where we never want to have agricultural activities and then start looking at that to rehabilitate it to regional states. And that means many things. Alien clearing, cleaning of the rivers, rehabilitating river banks, rehabilitating erosion. So it's an ongoing program. We establish a nursery on a farm and we promulgate plants from seeds that we collect on the farm. And then we replanted hundreds and thousands of trees and plants back onto the farm, rehabilitating land. So we're creating this massive green belt all across the farm where we bring natural birds and bees and bugs back to the state. We're also introducing it in between vineyard blocks so that we have more of a natural enemies for the bugs that grows on the vineyard. So we, we really try to bring a more biodiverse growth of plants into the vineyard. It's a very long-term process, but it's really the right thing to do in the long run. Baxberg and Speer are among several wineries to have been declared biodiversity champions in a program that began as a collaboration between the South African wine industry and the World Wildlife Fund. Champions must meet high IPW standards as well as high standards for their conservation programs as well. Graham Beck is another such champion and the second farm in the Cape to achieve that status back in 2006. Their conservation efforts also inspired their neighbors, leading to the creation of one of the biggest conservancies in the Cape. I'm Moshi Basson. I'm the conservation manager for the Graham Beck conservation area and I've been working for them for the last 20 years. It all basically started in March 97 and by 2000 I got involved in the whole process. So from there onwards in the next four years we basically trolled or stabilized most of our erosion problems on the conservation area because it was heavily overutilized, overgrazed before Mr. Beck acquired it as he acquired extra pieces of land. So by 2004, we managed to get our first environmental management plan concepts organized. That was much wider than just the management of the game reserve. That started including a lot of aspects on the farm itself, which included stuff like sewerage and clean water control, waste management, all those sort of things, upgrading or systems of upgrading soil conditions where we plant our vineyards and those sort of things. So that was a much broader environmental management plan. And in that plan, one of the distinct things were basically to somehow try and incorporate or entice our neighbors to also start getting involved in these more sustainable ways of doing things. So by 2006, we had our first meeting with about 17 of our neighbors, and we created a voluntary conservation organization called the Royberg Breeder Review Conservancy. 
uh, and that consisted then of the original 17 members and that brought in X amount of hectares in a conservation effort. Subsequently, a lot of our focus then started around not just our little pocket of conservation area, but also issues in the broader scale of things. So by, I think, 2014, we started working towards the Funk River conservation area. And that is a little tributary that runs through most of our combined landowners' land. So that Funk River vision or how to restore the Funk River vision then led to a various lot of other things like the catchment situation assessment that were done, which we funded at that stage by Dr. Peter Uldner. And he showed a whole lot of things that are wrong in the river system, not just on our property, but on, on the broader scale. And then the government conservation guys sort of caught up with us and they also wanted to get involved and that subsequently led to management maintenance plan which were written for the broader water channels through the whole big area. So that was quite exciting to see that whole development of the broader area and that also created opportunity for us as landowners to start creating a corridor between the two major mountain ranges in the area, which is the Langeberg mountain range on the one side and the Rafisonren mountain range on the other side, and then creating these corridors for some of our game species and, and, and bird species to freely move between these mountain ranges. At the moment in the conservancy, I would say two major erosion type of problems. And it all stems from the same thing. It stems from a massive big flood that we had about 26 years ago, which is commonly known here as the Linesburg flood. That was a massive flood, fairly wide area, but the little town Linesburg had the biggest drama because they had a dam wall that broke and lots of people died. But during that flood, a lot of movement of topsoil happened. And then thereafter, in, in fact, the Department of Agriculture, instead of really going in and trying to fix all these river problems, they just channeled it. Or they thought, okay, this is the best way. But that's the whole problem. The solutions of one generation becomes the problem of the next and that type of thing. So, so okay, it was the solution at that stage. But then thereafter, a lot of our tributaries that run through, they ended up with these massive big channels, which is not a river system anymore. And of course, that got infected by alien invasive plants and were deviated in certain instances, which is not a preferable thing to do because the river wants to go where it wants to go and then it was shown another way. And of course, it breaks the banks and so So right. Major river restoration is a big thing, and that is what the Conservancy is busy with at the moment. But then the other thing was a lot of big donga, erosion donga started occurring. And as a Conservancy, we've actually spent about 3 million rand lately on just restoring the movement of soil by means of massive big gabions that we put in the system and creating sponges for the water not to flow as quickly as it should. 
And that's even before it gets to the tributaries. So it's these wider areas in the conservancy with bare eroded dongas. But a lot of those have been addressed. And the whole, I think, 13,500 hectares, as we talk at the moment, is fairly stable. Where we stand now as a broader group of people or conservation-minded landowners, let's put it that way, is we are extremely involved in the Conservation at Work organization, which is another voluntary organization for conservation-minded landowners in the Western Cape. The breeders of a conservancy managed to go into agreement with WWF where they co-funded a manager who done a fantastic job to start off with by organizing the cleaning of the top areas of the river systems with teams of guys removing alien invasive stuff. And that whole program is up and running. And at the same time, also running a program for fire management in the area, making fire breaks that run through a whole lot of people's land and make it more safe. So gradually it's not just a conservation thing, it's a fire management thing for us in the area. And then lately the latest thing has also became a safety issue where as a group of landowners we appointed, instead of each guy have their own safety or security people, we now have a body that runs security within the whole area with their own vehicles and, and whatever. So a lot bigger than what we thought. And then, of course, some of the landowners indicated that they actually wanted to be more involved and they all went into agreement try and declare their land as a conservation area with more status, which basically, if they can get it right, would declare some sections with the same status as a national park, which is, of course, fantastic. So the conservancy now consists of roughly about 30 landowners, 30 landowners. It's extended more than the 13 uh, and a half thousand hectares of natural vegetation. In fact, more than 15,000 hectares of land and roughly about 13 and a half thousand of that is still natural. The rest have been developed now in certain ways. That and getting our neighbors and everybody involved resulted in two programs that we started for the youth as well. The one was the normal outward bound type of thing. So there's opportunity for outward bound to experience our area and come and walk around there. But the other one, quite exciting one, was, was with the Wilderness Foundation. He was a big guru there. And the CS in Zela program, which if we translate that as a cause word to say, we are doing it for ourselves. So the CS in Zela program, then take youth or guys that finish school but can't find work, and they put them through a course, and that we've done through our skills, Graham and Ronovic Skills Training Center, and then some of those kids can actually go further, and they can go into the Uzumbutu courses, which is an off-year course, full-time, and then they come to us and do a practical thing for half-year on, on our reserve. That is actually quite exciting for me because in the last 
three years, basically, we managed to place about 80 youngsters, 8-0 youngsters in conservation jobs. Well, either conservation jobs or the other possibility is in the hospitality service or a chef or somebody that helps with these guest houses. A lot of our local students or local kids in the area managed to then find a way of actually creating a very good job opportunity for them. So that's a very exciting field that we moved in. It's extremely important for us to two things. The one is to utilize the nature that we have to available to us and use that sort of serenity to help the younger generation find themselves and also use that serenity and the wilderness leadership trails that we do for them to sort out some of their very unique problems that they are experiencing. And then the plus side is we can also guide them towards a conservation-minded or nature-based job, if that is what they are interested in. We have the Entrepreneurs Program, where we actually have a person dedicated to help people in the community and the broader community to grow trees fast. We help them with seeding, and in return for this program, we buy the trees back from them at different stages, different length, different heights. And most of the time, we pay in the form of, of vouchers, gift voucher for school clothes or a bicycle or something like that. And it's amazing to see how many kids, old people participate in this program to start growing trees. So it's a really phenomenal project. We also have an agro-academy that Spear supports, which are close to the nursery. It's a program that we run where we educated students over a period of three years how to become sustainable farmers, vegetable farmers. And we are very proud to see the first group just finishing off. Some of them will go back to the Eastern Cape and start up a vegetable company. We are busy with many of these things. We support the Sustainability Institute down the road from us where they support the local school. And then in this area, we also do a lot of training for the agro-academy where people can study this type of thing. So we have many programs on the environmental front. That's an interesting thing is if you look at global warming, there are a couple of main contributors or variables contributing to global warming. And if you're going to isolate the four or five biggest ones, one of them would be agriculture. So agriculture is one of the bigger driving factors in this global warming exercise. That's a big negative. The upside is that if we change agriculture, we can actually have quite a lot of leverage to make a positive difference to global warming. Agriculture is a very effective tool to make a positive difference on behalf of mankind. And the most obvious way to do this is that we have the ability to sequestrate carbon. As farmers, we can sequestrate a lot of carbon on behalf of our our fellow citizens on this planet. So if you look where we farm, these granite yields outside Stellenbosch are arguably some of the oldest 
and most extensively weathered viticultural soils you'll find anywhere in the world. And if you're going to walk into a conventional vineyard here and you measure your carbon levels of your soil or your humus levels of your soil, you're probably going to sit with a very low percentage of that soil being humus. In our case, it was less than 1%. It was 0.5 to 0.7%. Now, if you're going to do the same exercise in a conventional vineyard in Napa or in France, you're probably going to get closer to 2 maybe just over 2%. But what you ideally want to strive for in terms of organic and biodynamic farming is about 5%. Because when you can convert 5% of your soils to humus, the resilience of the plants that live there can increase or improve by as much as 300%. So if I build the humus levels in my soil, my plants become a, a lot more resistant to global warming, to drought, pressure, to, to drought about anything and everything. And agriculture cannot just be production-driven. It must be market-driven. People are waking up to this fact. And if I look at my kids, for example, if I look at the brands that they support, they're very aware and they definitely don't want to support brands that exploit people or exploit nature. So I see as a growing trend more and more people in the world supporting brands that do something for the planet and for mankind. And I think as a farmer, you cannot be just production driven in this day and age. You have to be aware of the market forces. And this, in my opinion, is definitely the way the market is heading. So I see more and more people going Organic, biodynamic, I'm almost weary to use those names because they've become so politicized. So perhaps I should rather say I've seen more and more people employing a form of regenerative agriculture where they actually build the soil as opposed to, to mine it or to strip it. And it's everywhere around me where I look. When we started, our portion of land was a quarter of a hectare. People thought we were nuts. Today... 20 years later, it's 120 hectares, and I think four, possibly five of my neighbors have also converted, not necessarily to biodynamics, but at least to certified organic status. Certification is a bit of a double-edged sword, because on the one hand, I don't actually want to be certified. Firstly, it costs a fortune. It's a lot of money that I have to take out of my farm and out of my business and pay over to a certification body that is seated in Germany or France or somewhere in the world. I'm working very hard to pay a small fortune over to a multinational once a year to tell people I'm organic. It's three days of inspections, vigorous, in the vineyards, in the wine cellar, through the invoices, interviewing staff, checking wine analysis in the laboratory, doing leaf and soil analysis in the laboratory. You really feel as if people are trying to catch you out. You're paying a fortune for that privilege. And that 100,000 rand that we spent on those three days in terms of certification would, in a karmic sense, be much better spent on the poor people of South Africa. 
I can imagine how much food I could buy for that 100,000 rands for the poor people of Kailicha or Nyanga or Guguletu or whatever. I would happily do so. I really would. I would actually much prefer doing so. My problem is that as the market moves towards a greener way, a lot of greenwashing follows. So there are people who definitely do their best to farm in a more sustainable way. But there are also ruthless people who continue to nuke the environment and just in their PR and in their websites and their little videos tell people how green they are. And I think that is wrong. And this third-party endorsement gives us some form of credibility because there's just unfortunately too much greenwashing going around that one just cannot at face value take what people tell you as the truth anymore. It's sad, but it's true. So there I feel it's important to have a third party that comes and does a very vigorous inspection of your premise and tells people, look, this guy is actually sound. It carries a lot of weight. The other thing interesting is I learned a lot from certification. So way back, for example, I had a situation where I didn't want to use artificial fertilizer. So I was looking for a source of manure for my vineyards. And I found a pig farm not too far away. And I, I drove over with my truck. And I spent weeks of backbreaking work, loading pig shit onto my truck, driving it back to the farm, putting it through a composting process and putting it in the vines. And I thought I was doing a wonderful job. And then when I did my certification, when I told them I, I used this pig manure, they said, so how do those pigs live? How are they living environments? Are they free range or do they keep them in little pens? What type of food do they give them? Are they on growth hormones and, and antibiotic injections and stuff? And it was crazy because I never thought that far. And going through this rigorous certification process actually made me farm better from an organic point of view. I learned a lot. So I've got a bit of a mixed feeling about it. I wish our brand had enough traction that people could trust us and say, Rainaker Wines, you can trust it. They're organic, they're biodynamic, they look after their stuff. But until such point is achieved, if it ever will be, I don't know. It's better to have third-party endorsement to give it a bit of credibility. What I like about the IPW system is that I found it to be quite inclusive. I thought that was a very good strategy. One could argue that the standards are not as high from an environmental point of view as they would be if you wanted to be organically certified or, or biodynamically certified. You can still spray systemic fungicides. You can still use artificial fertilizers and a whole bunch of stuff. But what they've done is they've made it very inclusive, so very little barrier to entry initially, which got a lot of people on board, a lot more people than, for example, signed up for organics or biodynamics. I'd say about a million times more. And what they then did is they just raised the bar a little bit year after year. 
added a few additional things. What about this? What about that? And for that, I think it's absolutely a great strategy. I really do. I I think it's important that I don't want to dilute what I'm saying, but there are many routes up the mountain. I think there are different forms of sustainability. My own definition of sustainability is a very broad one. I think if you just look at nature, if you look at sustainability, I think you're making a very big mistake. I think you equally have to look at how you treat the people on the farm. And to the same degree, you have to look at how you treat your money. Because if you're going to run out of money, it's not sustainable. If you exploit your people, it's not sustainable. So it's not just about nature. You've got to tick all the boxes. And then you have to do a bit of a balancing act and find a balance between those. But I think those initiatives are great. I love the fact that South Africa has the IPW system. As a farmer, if I drive through the country over the last 20 years, I'm, I'm amazed. I'm amazed Initially, it almost looked like a desert in winter. You would just see brown soil. Everything had been sprayed. Everything had been killed. In springtime, spring would be black. And then you would first shoots start growing after a couple of weeks, and then the sea of green would follow. But this is not the case anymore. Guys are not necessarily spraying all the cover crops. They might just spray under the rows, or they might spray alternate rows. They mow them. They drag them. A lot of the chemicals that we were allowed to use 20 years ago to combat leaf roll virus, for example, has been outlawed. 20 years ago, as a conventional farmer, I had to put on a helmet and a full suit, and I had to, to spray a product that was actually banned for use in Europe and kill the mealybug that was spreading the leaf roll. Today, as part of conventional agriculture, not organic or biodynamic, IPW system, the method is to release beneficial predators, wasps and things, and put out pheromone traps. So uh, these are also not static positions. They've all evolved, and they will continue to do. And perhaps a sign of maturity will be when we can move beyond these groupings of organic or biodynamic or IPW or whatever, and we can all just farm regeneratively and sustainably. At the end of the day, no two conventional farmers farm the same. And by the same means, no two organic farmers will farm the same and no two biodynamic farmers will farm the same. So where the systems or the ideologies are very important now to make political points and to move people over the line, if you really want to be brutally honest, I think the farmer is probably more important than just the system that's being used. I think you can actually stuff up nature if you're a bad organic farmer or if you're a bad biodynamic farmer. It's not a guarantee that you're going to benefit nature. So I think it's complex. I think we must hold on to the beliefs we have, but I think we must also keep an open mind, not get sort of stuck in trenches and in, 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 in groupings. And hopefully, yeah, it would be so awesome if we, everybody could just move forward and find a, a more sustainable way for all of us to live together with nature. That would be first price. I'd love that. It really stems from a very deep and strong ingrained belief that there is no escaping the basic requirements of life. We as humans need clean water. We as humans need clean air. We as humans need pliable good soils to grow stuff. And if we as a generation, don't look after that, we will definitely hand a very, very bad apple 
for the next generation. And, and that is very important for us. We somehow realize that we are living in this world that are devoid from consequences. People are utilizing, using, making stuff, throwing away stuff, whatever. And I somehow just feel, well, the consequences won't be ours. The consequences will be the next generation. And they got to now but try and figure that. And from Grandback's side, that is where we started our program. Let's change that. We are feeling extremely strong that what we can do today will have to make a difference. And and, and we've got to do it today. We, we can't wait or get involved in all sorts of things. We've got to do it today. We've got to do the right stuff today to make sure that the next generation have the opportunity to survive on this little earth. That is where we start. That is our base of things. I think landowners really need to focus on the point that they should do these things because we are living in that generation that if we don't do it, we will lose a lot of possibility or future survival possibility. If we don't do that, we as a generation will really mess this a lot up. And the next guys, the next generation most probably won't have the opportunity to fix it all the time. I hope you enjoyed this look at sustainability efforts in the South African wine industry. You can find more resources and links to the producers we talked to at our website, wosa.us. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, or better yet, go to the platform where you found it and leave a review. That will help more people discover it and discover South African wines. Next episode, we're going to get high. That is to say, we'll be looking at high-elevation vineyards across the Western Cape. Seeking out cooler growing sites in South Africa has traditionally meant heading toward chilly South Atlantic waters, but a handful of wine growers are leading the way in cultivating high-altitude spots that produce a different take on cool climate wines. I hope you'll join us. Thank you.